All right, good afternoon, everyone. Would you turn in your Bibles with me to uh, Galatians chapter 6? We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 18. Galatians 6, verses 11 through 18. Uh, Well, this is it. This is our last sermon on the book of Galatians. Uh, We're ending our series here this afternoon, and I'm going to be highlighting today four major themes that come out of this passage at the very end of Paul's letter. Themes that summarize, four themes that summarize the entire message of the book. So let me pray, and then we'll dive in. Lord, we are so thankful for the gift of your word. Thankful that we can come here, gather together as your people to read your word proclaimed out loud. Lord, as we just heard it read. Lord, your life-giving, life-sustaining word that challenges us, convicts us, encourages us, grows us and shapes us. And Lord, we pray right now that you would open our hearts to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, May is a month of transitions, right? School's almost over, graduation's happening all over the place. Last weekend, our oldest daughter, Eliana, graduated from high school along with a number of other students here in the congregation. We've been hopping from one grad party to the next. <laughs> We're like party hoppers from place to place. We, has, we don't have to buy dinner anymore. We just get hot dogs here, hamburgers here, potato salad there. And so it's an emotional time as one chapter in our lives ends and a new one begins. And I think Paul has some similar emotions in his mind as he comes to the end of his message here to the Galatians. He can't physically be present in all these churches at the same time. So he has one chance to convince them about his message. And here at the end of the letter, he realizes his time is running short. And looking back over all six chapters, this this has been a passionate letter, right? Short compared to sort of Romans or Corinthians. But hard to really call it sweet. I mean, Paul has gone hard and fast after his opponents. He hasn't held back any punches. He's the first one to admit right here in the letter, I'm not a people pleaser. He has one concern and one concern only. That the Galatians would experience true freedom in Christ. That's our first big theme today. True freedom in Christ. Freedom is so important. Because Christianity is not meant to be a burden. Sometimes it's portrayed that way by other people. Maybe, maybe you felt that way as a kid growing up in church. Or maybe some of you still feel that today. Being, like you're being dragged to church. Like, oh boy, what's the pastor want us to do this weekend? But listen, what we want you to do is to experience this freedom in Christ. Just like Paul, we want you to experience freedom from bondage to sin. We want you to experience freedom from the guilt and shame of your past. We want you to experience freedom from the stifling excesses of legalism. 
We want you to experience freedom from anxiety, freedom from fear and hopelessness. We want you to experience freedom from the tyrannical rule of every kind of false gospel. We want you to experience freedom from the lies of the devil. We want you to be free. And in place of all those chains, just like Paul has emphasized over and over and over again in this letter, we want you to experience the liberating freedom of new life in Christ. We want you to experience true and lasting rest as the adopted sons and daughters of your Heavenly Father. We want you to receive the full inheritance that has been promised to you as heirs of the kingdom. We want you to live in and through the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God Himself dwelling inside each and every one of you. We want you to experience the peace and mercy and grace and boundless favor of God Himself as He works in your life to help you grow and bear fruit for Him and His kingdom. And the same here is true for Paul. That's why he's so fired up in this letter. Not because he's hot-headed or or quick to fly off the handle, but because he's desperate for the Galatians to walk in the freedom for which they've been set free. You know, when I was in uh, college, we uh, went backpacking one summer. Part of the trip was learning how to go fly fishing, which... It looks so beautiful and elegant in the movies and everything else. This is exceptionally hard. It takes hours of practice. And so we're up there by this lake, trying our hand at casting. And suddenly the girl next to me gets a fish. Now they had told us that when you fly fishing, if you feel a nibble, you've got to give it a little little tug to, to set the hook. Well, in all the excitement of this moment, this, 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 this young woman, she, 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 she just takes the whole rod, just goes like this. And she didn't just set the hook, but she sent that fish flying way up and over our heads until it landed on the hill behind us. We have flying fish in Wyoming. So we go scrambling up the hill, and we're, we're looking for this fish, and we find it flopping around on the dirt. And this poor girl, she's totally traumatized by this whole experience. She's like a tree-hugging vegetarian. I have no idea even why she's fishing. But, so we like unhook. It's this tiny little fish. There's no way we're keeping this thing. So, so we unhook it, and we take it back down to the lake, and she's crying. Is it going to be okay? Is it going to be okay? And so, so we gently put it back in the water, and it just kind of floats up to the top. It's just like upside down. I'm like, this is not look good. So then uh, it slowly it starts kind of moving around and starts going in circles a little bit. And I'm like, wow, maybe there's, maybe there's hope here. And it starts picking up pace. And all of a sudden, it was like someone flipped a switch and it just flipped itself over and whew, it's gone in the lake. It was amazing. She was very relieved by this. <laughs> Now, now why do I tell you this story? Because I think the Galatians were feeling a little bit like that little fish, swimming around in circles, dazed and confused. These false teachers that have come into the church, 
They put them all turned around. They don't know which way is up anymore. They're questioning everything, wondering if they need to become fully observant Jews now in order to be right with Christ. And Paul's letter is his way of saying, as emphatically as possible, no way. Paul's like, look, you're not on the hook for any of that anymore. Jesus set you free from the old way of life that led to death. Why would you want to go back? Look around at the open water all around you. Swim away. Be free. And we as pastors, we want you to be free also. That's why we chose this book to study. That's why we've pushed hard through some challenging and difficult material here. Because like Paul, we want you to experience the the fullness of new life in Christ. We don't want anyone or anything to stand in your way. So this week, when, when you open your Bible... I want you to be thinking, this is my pathway to freedom. This is my pathway to freedom. These stories, these these are my stories. These people, these are my spiritual ancestors. This is my family that I'm reading about here. The voices speaking to us from God's Word should take precedence over all the competing voices calling out to us from the world. But that can only happen when you take it up and read. So, be free. It's the first theme this this afternoon. But a second major theme for Paul is his passion for people. And one of the first rules that everyone learns when communicating via email or text is if you all is if is writing in all caps is basically the equivalent of shouting, right? Like if someone sends you an email and it's written in all caps, it's like, whoa, chill out. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. But 2,000 years ago, when Paul was alive, writing in all caps was the norm. Like The whole New Testament is written in all caps. That's all they had. They weren't writing in cursive. It wasn't unusual or annoying. So if you wanted to emphasize something, you couldn't put it in all caps because it's all all capped already. (laughs) So it's a little strange here when Paul says in verse 11, um, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. What is he talking about? Well, it probably help for us to know that at the time uh, when writing letters, they were usually copied out by scribes. So basically, Paul would dictate the letter and a, a professional scribe would write it down for him. It was like the ancient version of saying, Hey Siri! Except the scribe actually understood what you were saying. Instead of Siri, who can't understand anything that I say. No, I will not say that again. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not planning on that. Um, <laughs> For this reason, Paul would use scribes to write his letters. 
wasn't it unusual? It shouldn't cause you pause. Like, oh my goodness, Paul didn't actually write Galatians. Well, he wrote it. He dictated the words. It doesn't matter that someone else was the person actually putting the pen to paper. Paul was still the author. But, having said that, at the end of many of his letters, Paul would still add his own touch. We see this in a number of uh, letters. Perhaps to convey personal warmth or affection or to offer a prayer or to indicate the letter's authenticity. Look, like, like this is really Paul writing this letter. In fact, here, this is really interesting. A lot of people did this at the time. This is a letter, um, there's a New Testament professor, uh, Steve Reese, and he was doing research on Paul's letters. And he found, this is actually a legal document written at the same time that Paul is, is alive and writing. And down here, you can see, right around here, the writing changes. So up here is the... This is the neat writing of the scribe, all the, all the legally jargon for this contract up here. And then down here, this is, um, if, if you could read it, uh, this is notes from the person whose contract it is, adding their own qualifications and, and information to it. So you can imagine, if you like, Paul in Galatians thanking the scribe for his work and saying, you know, I got the rest from here. I want to write something myself. But now why he draws attention to his large letters, we don't really know. It could be that it was for emphasis, but Paul doesn't really struggle emphasizing things. Remember? Oh foolish Galatians! Like, he didn't have to write that in large letters. They got the point. Honestly, I I do think it could be in part because he had bad eyesight. I mean, you read all the commentators now, like, oh, no, 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 that couldn't possibly be the reason. Doesn't sound academic enough. Um, but look, I'm in my 40s. I, the eye doctor regularly reminds me, like, once you hit your 40s, you need reading glasses. <laughs> You're always doing this. And keep going further back. I can hide it with contact lenses, but I don't think Paul had reading glasses, contact lenses. He was a real human being, remember. Like an actual person. But the same professor I mentioned, uh, Steve Reese, he actually reconstructed, this is not the actual letter to Galatians, but in his research he's saying, look, maybe it could have looked something like this. Again, this is what the scribe wrote here, and then in Galatians, this is perhaps what it would have looked like. Paul's larger letters coming at the end. Aside from being interesting historical information, I bring this up because I want you to be reminded of the personal nature of Paul's engagement with his people. We lose so much of this when, you know, our Bibles, like every single word in this book looks exactly the same. On your phones, it's the same thing. It's all identical. But the key here is that Paul wanted the people hearing this letter, they're hearing it read out loud, remember. Someone's standing there and reading it. And he wants them to know that he's addressing them personally. Even if using a scribe was the norm, he wanted to leave some kind of personal imprint on the letter, indicating this is mine, these are my words. Even though Paul cannot be there in person, 
He goes to great pains over and over again to emphasize his care, his concern for the Galatians. Stephen and Mark and Michael and I, look, we can sit down with you at a table in the fellowship meal, face to face. We can be with you in person, walk with you through trials and and, and times of suffering and grief and sorrow and moments of celebration. Paul is forced to, to pastor from a distance through these letters. And he's pulling out all the stops to be as effective as possible, even when he's so far away. The Galatians are his people. It's like, this is my flock. And he's deeply concerned for them. So when you think of, the, of Galatians, I want you to think Paul's passion for his people. Even in the midst, his, his argumentative tone, right? And, and his confrontational rebukes, all of it. It's because he cares so deeply for his people that he's this fired up. You know, I've been reading through the prophets recently, and so much of the language is reminiscent of Paul's kind of language here. Right? I mean, Galatians 1 6, Paul says, I'm astonished that you're falling away so quickly. That's kind of mild, actually, to what we read in the prophets. Because God fights for his people. That's why he gets so worked up. He fights for his people. He fights for his honor. And Paul is doing the same thing here. He's fighting for the gospel, fighting for his people. And as pastors, when we get involved in your lives, it's because we're fighting for you. We're deeply concerned for you. And you should have that same zeal for your own spiritual lives. If you're reading Galatians and like, what is his deal? Like, this guy needs to chill out. Like, where's that zeal for your spiritual life? Your concern for the gospel. Your concern about the, 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 the way in which false gospels creep into our lives. Your concern for the spiritual well-being of the people God's brought into your, your home, your family, your extended family, your work, your neighborhood. We should be fighting with this same spiritual zeal for the gospel to go out into the world and for God to be glorified as a result. Well, third major theme here in the book is new life through faith alone. Look with me uh, at the text here, starting in verse 12. Paul says, It's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. Like many people, we've been doing a lot of planting at home recently. Well, first it was cleaning up and then weeding, but then finally planting. And when I say we, it's sort of like a collective we. It's mostly Kari and the girls, but I sort of contribute guidance from a distance to that. But, you know, when you buy these little plants at the store, they're tiny. 
They're so tiny. It's like you buy these little three packs with the roots and everything. They can barely stand up by themselves. You have to be so careful when putting them in the pots that they don't fall over or get crushed. And what's the first thing you do after planting them all? You water them like crazy and, and that fresh potting soil is like a dry sponge and it just soaks up all that water. So you have to. <laughs> They've got these tiny little roots. You've got to keep them well watered or they're just going to dry up like a crisp. Because water brings life. In my yard, it nourishes the plants. It makes my lawn all nice and green. In my body, it's the hydration that keeps me alive. And spiritually speaking, Jesus is that spiritual water that we all thirst for. It's that Isaiah 55. Come to the living water, right? Well, for the Galatians, Jesus brings new life through faith alone. But these false teachers, with their desire to impose extra-legal requirements on the Galatians, they're stealing that life away. They're not interested in nurturing the gross in the young Galatian believers. They don't care about these tender, young plants. In fact, according to to Paul in verse 12, their goal is simply to make a good showing for themselves. They want to boast in their own achievements. It's the worst kind of spiritual hypocrisy. The believers in Galatia, they don't really weigh that heavily on the hearts of these false teachers. Fear of being persecuted for the cross, that's what weighs heavily on Paul's opponents here. Struggling to keep the law, that's what weighs heavily on his opponents. Impressing other people weighs heavily on his opponents' hearts. All this stuff about circumcision and uncircumcision, Paul's opponents, remember, they're pushing a works-based righteousness. It doesn't come from faith. But Paul, in comparison, here in verse 14, says, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He says, look, they want to boast in the number of converts they have to their way of belief. They want to boast in their effectiveness as teachers and leaders. But me, if I'm going to boast, it's going to be in one thing and one thing only, and that's the cross. Not a beautiful, stained glass, pretty cross. Not a perfect, shiny gold necklace cross. But the dirty wooden cross on which Jesus Christ was killed. In the world's eyes, the ultimate symbol of shame and humiliation and hopelessness and failure and death. An ugly, brutal, horrifying symbol of Roman oppression. Now why would Paul boast in something so offensive? So foolish? Because it was the cross on which Jesus conquered death, defeated sin, overthrew all oppressive regimes, banished shame, overcame humiliation, and brought hope into the world. 
It was a cross on which Jesus became the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. The false teachers, they can only offer rigid law. But Paul presents the Galatians with spirit-filled life. The false teachers could only point to themselves, but Paul points the people to Jesus. A note here, Paul doesn't say, my Lord or your Lord, but our Lord, yours, mine, collectively. Remember all that language Paul used earlier in the letter? If you're in Christ, you're part of the family now. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. Not metaphorically, but like, like real, a reality, a spiritual reality, united together in Christ. And like in any family, maybe there are some folks you're like, really? Like, do I have to be related to them? It's like, yes! Because God is the one who's building His kingdom. And we go where He wants us to go. It's just like in my yard. The, the, the plants don't get to choose which pots they go in. Which are the plants they get to be around. And look at verse 15. Uh, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Maybe you've seen those posters uh, in people's homes or coffee mugs or something that say, bloom where you're planted. Have you seen those? Sometimes I think it would be more accurate to say, bloom despite where you're planted or bloom despite who you're planted next to. Even if you don't like your job, even if you're struggling in school, even if your family life is hard right now, when you get frustrated or overwhelmed. Remember, this is Paul's message in Galatians 5. It's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who enables us to do this crazy thing called church. It's the Spirit who brings forth this fruit in our lives of peace and patience and gentleness and kindness. And it's the Spirit who will help us grow and thrive wherever God has chosen in His wisdom to place us. And that's why the cross is so significant for Paul. His argument with the false teachers is not abstract theology, it's intensely practical. This is the nuts and bolts stuff of everyday life. Because without the cross, or more specifically without everything that the cross represents, Jesus' death and resurrection, without all of that, there, there is no gift of the Spirit. There is no power for living in this broken world. There is no new life in Christ. There is no rescue plan. Without that cross, there is no hope. Without the cross, we're still living under guardians, still locked up in prison, to use Paul's language, still trapped in our sins. But the cross is a sign of definitive change. Like I said, my daughter's going to college uh, in the fall. How weird would it be for her to keep resubmitting her application at this point in the game? Like over and over again. Like she doesn't wake up in the morning and go, wow, I wonder, I wonder if I should send in 
another application essay, you know, like just to make sure. Or maybe I should do the ACT a few more times this summer and just keep sending scores in to the school. They'll be ridiculous, right? The school will be like, what on earth are you doing? Like, we've already accepted you. And in a similar way, if you've put your faith, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, then you're in. It's a done deal. Nothing else is required. That's what Paul means when he says you've been crucified with Christ. It's already happened in the past. You're a fundamentally different person now. As he says, you're part of the new creation. Of course, that new creation is, is not yet fully enacted until God, until Jesus returns and, and establishes the new heavens and the new earth. But, but nevertheless, the tide has changed. The seasons have shifted. You're no longer the same person you were before. You have the Holy Spirit living within you. Even now. The external signs of religiosity are irrelevant. All that matters now is the new creation. Well, there's a fourth and final theme I want to squeeze in here this morning or this afternoon. And really, it's more of just a a final charge that Paul makes to everyone. And that's keep walking in the way of Christ. Look at the very last verses of our text in, in verse 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Well, for the early church 2,000 years ago, with little, little to no medical care, low wages, poverty, shorter life expectancy, living under Roman rule, life was difficult. I mean, I don't think we can understand how much harder it would have been. And yet, in the middle of all that, Paul's final word is not, and may God give you everything he can so that you can enjoy a wonderful, happy existence. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But true lasting peace doesn't come through the avoidance of suffering, pain, and even death. Not that we can really avoid those things even if we try. Rather, Paul says, peace and mercy come from walking or or, or following the rule of life. Meaning, the way of the cross that he's just been laying out for the people. The way of Jesus. That's the only path to peace. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, slave or free, male or female, young or old, it's the same gospel for everyone. That phrase in your text, the the Israel of God, it refers collectively to all those who walk on this road. The people of God are those who are marked by the cross. Those who claim Jesus as Lord, one People bound together by the gospel. Paul knew this road well, right? We, we just heard Bob reading to us from 2 Corinthians 11. The beatings, the imprisonments, the heartache, the struggle. 
That's what he's talking about here. Bearing the marks of Jesus on his body. Literally, scars from the stonings. And yet, Paul knew and still publicly and consistently proclaimed that this was still the way, the only way, to peace and mercy and grace and forgiveness and new life and all the blessings that are made available to those who are in Jesus, in Christ. It's the path that you and I need to pursue as well, the way of Christ. We may not have to endure quite the same degree of suffering that Paul went through. But this road is nevertheless one that will require humility and sacrifice. Thriving marriages will require husbands and wives to be willing to die to themselves, to sacrifice their needs and wants out of love for each other. Successful parents will endure suffering and pain and struggle as they set aside their own comfort and ease in order to teach their children about Jesus and live as a family in ways that are often radically different than the world around them. And for all of us, the goal of making disciples of Christ should be the primary filter through which we push all our decisions, where we live, how we'll use our time, how we're going to spend our money, Paul's final words seem to imply that a life lived for Christ is a life well lived, whatever that costs us. So I want to conclude today the way Paul does, by offering you grace, reminding you of God's offer of grace. Paul's letter opens with an offer of grace and peace, and he closes it with the same. So wherever you are on this road, whatever you're struggling with, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you on this journey. Grace to persevere. Grace to to, to press on. Grace to keep walking in the footsteps of Jesus in and through the life-sustaining power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for the gift of this word, this this, this letter to the Galatians preserved for us in Scripture. Not even so much Paul's letter, but really, Lord, your letter to us. A reminder of the centrality of the cross. This free gift of new life that we have in Christ. Lord, thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, that through the work of your Spirit in our lives, we would walk in that freedom that you have set before us. And do it for your glory, in your name. Amen.